The views expressed on this show by guests and the hosts on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. I'm the host, Andy Steele. This week we're joined again by Craig McKee. He's been a journalist in Montreal for over 30 years, covering news and entertainment. He's a writer over at Truth and Shadows, and he's a writer at AE911 Truth as well. And he's got a new article out about the work that the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry is pursuing surrounding the anthrax attacks of 2001. We're going to hear about it today. Craig, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Andy. Always always fun to be here. That is true, and I <laughs> love the fact that we can talk about the anthrax attacks again today because we don't get to cover it very often. Our main focus is on the destruction of the three towers in New York on September 11th, but I have always considered the anthrax attacks to be part of September 11th. It's very clear that whoever was responsible for those letters, was trying to make it look like a continuation of what we saw on that day and that it was being carried out by the same people they tried to pin 9-11 on. So definitely worth talking about. It was part of the campaign of terror to ram through the Patriot Act and all the goodies that 9-11 delivered onto the people of the United States and the world afterwards, and we're going to focus on it today because the Lawyers Committee is taking some action with it. Tell our audience about the recent action from the Lawyers Committee, which is the focus of your article. Well, it's um, I, I guess the actual uh, step they took goes back to to la- late last year um, when they uh, submitted a petition to Congress, basically calling on Congress to open a new investigation in, <clears throat> into the anthrax attacks, and they they submitted a 78 page petition with tremendous um, detail in it. Uh, quite a, quite an accomplishment, I think, uh, to have produced this. And they uh, they they have with that uh, 69 different exhibits uh, that that sort of support each each aspect of of the petition. So it's an enormous uh, it's an enormous dissection, really, of the of the official story and of completely kind of destroys the uh, the FBI investigation into the attacks. And I, I think. Anytime I would refer to to the FBI investigation of, of anthrax, I would always put the word investigation in quotation marks um, because what what they did you know didn't constitute an investigation. It, it really constituted a a, a deception uh, and and accompanying cover up. Really, uh, I mean they uh, you know the th- the original thing as you, as you mentioned, it looked like it was directly linked to 9/11. In the sense that it looked like it was Al Qaeda terrorists that did both. At least it, it looked that way to, to the mainstream, anyway. Um, but it didn't take very long before that that story was abandoned. And and kind of along the way, the link was made to Iraq. The original the the, the case that the government was trying to make 
in those first few months was that it was Iraq that was behind the anthrax attacks and that they uh, they made use of al-Qaeda operatives to, to actually carry out the mission. So that story kind of went by the wayside fairly often, fairly early, and it, it, it settled on the idea that it, it appeared to have been, you know, a domestic, in quotes, terrorist who had carried out somebody inside the U.S. military. But even though it was being, you know, focused on the military, it was still, they were still talking in terms of a lone, a lone nut, you know, somebody that had gone off the deep end. So it, there wasn't any kind of, it was, at no point was the U.S. military being blamed for this. It was just uh, an individual. And, and the, you know, one of the things I learned more about, I mean, it's one of the things I enjoyed do, about doing this article was that although I knew a certain amount about, about the anthrax attacks, and I think a lot of people in the, in the 9-11 truth movement, uh, they know a certain amount about it. But I, I wonder how many of us really know uh, a lot about it. And I, I learned a lot of new, new stuff um, from doing this. Certainly, just one of the things that's amazing is how the FBI kind of went from from suspect to suspect and really, you know, harassed people and surveilled them and and uh, you know, finally settling on Bruce Ivins, who clearly the the, the case that the lawyers committee is making is that, that Bruce Ivins not only wasn't guilty of this but could not have been could not have done it. Um, but they, you know, they really this this guy was appeared to be a kind of emotionally fragile person and. You know, they harassed him to the point where uh, it seems that he committed suicide. Um, and, you know, some people would have would have, uh, you know, questions, I guess, about whether he actually did that or not or whether he's murdered. So with, with Bruce Ivins, what they what they did is they waited till his apparent suicide before they named him publicly as the lone perpetrator, which seems like a really kind of slimy thing to do. Um, and, and that's been their, their, their claim ever since, that Ivan's acted alone and that he, uh, he carried out all the attacks. But the fact is that uh, as, as the, in the article, I, I, interview, uh, well, I interview three different people who are from the Lawyers Committee who, and the, the Anthrax Committee within the Lawyers Committee. And um, Dr. Merrill Nass is one of them, and she's been a, an Anthrax expert for for more than 30 years, and she knew Ivan's personally. And so she has a kind of a personal stake in wanting to get the truth out because she, she believes strongly that, that Ivan's was framed by the FBI. And she explains, uh, you know, much more uh, eloquently and scientifically than I could do uh, as to why it's impossible for Ivan's to have done these attacks. One thing she points out is there were no traces of, of uh, anthrax that that matched either of the two groups of letters that were sent out um, in his in his workplace, and she says that they it would have been impossible to eradicate those traces if he had actually been been doing those making those you know uh, that those batches of anthrax to put in the letters. So really, uh, Ivans was clearly a patsy in all this, and it, it seems like such a shame because. They, you know, they harassed the man basically until he killed himself, um, assume, assuming that's actually what what happened. And they've stuck to this ever since. And the interesting thing, too, that I learned about it is that uh, 
the Lawyers Committee's made contact not only with several of the of the scientists um, who worked at Fort Detrick, and and all of them are supportive of the idea that that Ivans was innocent, um, but they've also made contact with the uh, with Rick Lambert, who had Lambert, who ran the Amerithrax investigation, which was the FBI's investigation uh, from 2002 to, to 2006. And he quit basically because of obstruction coming from above uh, from the FBI. So that he, he actually spoke to the lawyers committee and he, he has a 2000 page report that is classified. And he, he basically told the lawyers committee that if they wanted to see the contents of that, they would have to go to go to Congress and get Congress to subpoena the report. Um, but what he did tell them, though, is he said that there are about 16 pages within that 2,000-page report uh, where uh, they basically exonerate Ivans as being the anthrax attack uh, orchestrator. So even the, in, even the people who we would think of as being on the inside, like the, the military scientists and the former head of the FBI investigation, they're saying that Ivans didn't do it. So it's, 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 it's a pretty clear-cut case. And so they, they make a very compelling case for reopening this investigation um, because, uh, as I think Merrill Nass points out, most people assume that either, you know, that Ivans was guilty or that we have no idea who did it. But it's, it seems clearly that it did come from the U.S. military in some way, but, but not from a, you know, not from a patsy like, like Ivans. Well, it's so obvious to me, especially now knowing what I know about the towers on September 11th and the fact that they were brought down with explosives, there is no other explanation, despite what the smoke screens they try to put up, that obviously the anthrax attacks, too, were part of that. They were staged, set up so that they could blame whoever they wanted to blame the initial months and year following that attack and then in the end they pinned it on Bruce Ivins but you mentioned about how they tried to pin this on Iraq at one point and there's never any accountability for this you know they're allowed to just put out these rumors put out this misinformation and these fake assertions get the effect that they want and then we as a society never step back and say hey you know that we got it wrong on that part and that's how we ended up in this situation maybe we should uh, keep a closer eye on the news that we're getting and what we're hearing from our government officials before we uh, react. But we don't do that. We don't say those things to ourselves or to each other, and that's how we end up with diapers on our faces uh, 20 years later. <laughs> um, but uh, what you're saying right now is so startling. I mean, it's not startling to me because I'm in this all the time, but it should be startling to anyone that's listening to this subject matter for the very first time, and that there's information that exonerates Bruce Ivins, and that it's just so obvious that this guy was set up. Uh, I mean, this is something that we probably have not focused on enough here in the 9-11 Truth Movement, and it really is a shame, and it's scary, too. You know, there's a myth out there. First, The first myth I've talked about on this show is this myth that's perpetuated in movies that if you just get the evidence to the media or to the government or to the President of the United States, it's going to be acted upon, the whole story's going to be broke, and the movie will be over. That's not how real life works at all. All of those entities are complicit usually in the cover-ups but the other myth is the myth of good police work now there are cases where there's good police work where they solve a murder after 10 years maybe the case has gone cold and you can watch all these shows about it but there's a lot of pressure to close cases on police 
And uh, sometimes people are coerced into false confessions and suspicion is put on people when there shouldn't be, maybe because they just stand out or they're a little weird or something like that. And then in these cases where somebody is actually used as a patsy for a big crime, and it is terrifying. It makes you, if you're the kind of person that stands out in your neighborhood, uh, it makes you hope to God that nothing will happen in your neighborhood uh, because uh, you know they, they want to spin that suspicion around on you. But in this case, they basically had put out the idea that this was being done by the same people they were trying to blame 9-11 on. They got the effect that they wanted, uh, the Patriot Act and everything else. And then when it was clear that it couldn't have come from Al-Qaeda terrorists, they found somebody to pin it on, and then that guy just suddenly dies. I mean, come yeah. on, folks. Well, there's there's a, a, there's a great um, – I interviewed uh, Graham, Dr. Graham McQueen, uh, who is well-known to, to 9-11 truthers, because um, he, he did a terrific book in 2014 called The, the 2001 uh, Anthrax uh, Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. It's, it's really it's, – it's different. It's good, and he, you know, he made the point in, in our interview that his focus in the book is not – exactly the same as the lawyers committee the lawyers committee is focused more on the scientific evidence that can really be proven where they can they can prove that you know that ivans didn't uh didn't do it kind of thing whereas mcqueen goes into some other areas that the, the lawyers committee doesn't touch and um he, he he gave me a really good quote i'm going to read it to you because it just it, it, it kind of crystallizes why um why uh, the anthrax attacks kind of shed some light uh, on 9-11 and why they kind of uh, give us a clue that the whole thing was two parts of the same deception. So anyway, what he says is um, what we're being told is that on September 11th, real Islamic terrorists attacked New York and Washington and killed a bunch of people. And starting about a week later, fake Islamic terrorists, because they pretended in their uh, letters to be Islamic terrorists, who were people actually embedded in the U.S. military, attacked and killed a bunch of people in Washington and New York. It strains credibility. It would make anyone ask if the second one was fake, then maybe the first one was too. And it, it's so obvious and clear that – the other thing too that I, I found interesting in, in, in Graham's book is that he, he really chronicled – does a great job of chronicling uh, the indications that the media had foreknowledge of the, the coming anthrax attacks. And if they didn't specifically uh, – the journalists didn't specifically know what was going to happen, they may have just been kind of fed stories that they just turned around and, and went with. They may not have actually known themselves, but they were perhaps through some sort of arrangements they had with government people. They were printing stories that were uh, helpful to those who were orchestrating these attacks. So basically there were all kinds of articles uh, and news reports in the weeks after 9-11 – that said that the next thing that you know the, the next thing is going to be a biological attack, and it's really imminent, and everybody was kind of freaking out about how imminent a biological attack was. So again, talk about straining credibility that that the media could turn their uh, literally a few days after 9/11 could be focused on biological attacks, and then presto, these anthrax things come along. So I anyway, I recommend that book as well, but I. I if anybody really wants to sort of uh, understand the, the the scope of the of the lawyers committee, what they've done, you know, you can go to their website and uh, you can, I mean, you can read the whole 78 page petition, which is you know amazing and with all the exhibits. But they also have a um, 
a fairly brief executive summary, which is gives you a really good overview of, of kind of what their what their points are. And a lot of their focus is on the, you know, the absolutely fraudulent behavior of the FBI and, and its fraudulent so-called investigation of all of this. You know, I like to make observations, too, when I look at these things. And just we all know that the American media, Western media, really, loves to be hysterical, loves to be reactionary, loves to just be a point to death for as much as they can to uh, keep the, the story running and get that advertising revenue. And I guarantee if there was a garbage man that went crazy and killed five people in a neighborhood, there would be all sorts of stories about it. There would be panicked news stories telling people, how do you know if your garbage man is safe? Now, that would just be a garbage man, but think about a guy who goes crazy. He's working in an anthrax lab and sends out anthrax in the wake of 9-11. This is pretending the official story is true on Bruce Ivins. A guy goes crazy, sends out anthrax, kills five people. I mean, is that not a story that would be terrifying to most people, uh, most taxpayers, you know, knowing that uh, somebody who's in charge of these kinds of agents could just snap like that and do it. But you don't hear these kinds of stories about Bruce Ivins. You don't even hear about the anthrax attacks anymore. I mean, you see all sorts of true crime shows about things that happened years ago. The guy who went to the top of the clock tower at the University of Texas and shot a bunch of people. I mean, I've watched shows where they trace his every step on that day. They have actors playing all the people in his life. There's been movies about it. Right, but nothing. You don't hear hardly anything about Bruce Ivins anymore. And I mean, that would be if this was all true. This is all really happened. I mean, that would be a story that should be covered on ID Channel and and uh, you know, made-for-TV movies and such. But never see it. And it's because they want to hush it all up because none of it makes any sense. And I know a lot of people have turned off their common sense out there in the public, but this one is so fishy. I really think that if enough people actually looked at the details of this, their spidey senses would be going off. I'm glad you mentioned Graham McQueen, too, because you cite in this article, uh, with this paragraph, uh, in the 2001 Anthrax Deception, Chapter 7, page 134, McQueen addresses a stunning link between the anthrax attacks and 9-11 in the form of a connection between several of the alleged 9-11 hijackers and the first person to die in the anthrax attacks. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, um... This is a, a fascinating detail that I don't think – I'd be surprised if most people in the truth movement are, are familiar with these details. I certainly wasn't until I read the book. Um, it starts with – okay, they, they're, one of the, the uh, targets of the, the first group of anthrax uh, letters was a, a paper in, in Florida called The Sun, which is owned by the same company that owns the National Enquirer. And this guy Mike Irish uh, was the paper's editor-in-chief. And, and the person, who, the first person to die from anthrax, the first, there were five people who died, and the first one who died was a man named Robert Stevens, who this guy Mike Irish had known for 25 years. And Irish's wife, Gloria, was a real estate agent who not only sold Stevens his home, but also found apartments for basically four of the alleged 9-11 hijackers, um, two apartments with two each. In there, and she was acquainted with more than more than just those four, I believe, including um, you know. In this sort, of, some of these people are linked, obviously, to the different aspects of 9/11, including New York, of course. So it's it's really kind of hard to imagine what a coincidence that is that a woman who is connected to 
a victim, the first victim of the anthrax attacks, also personally knows at least two, in terms of the two people that actually rented the apartments, two of the alleged 9-11 hijackers. So the idea that this could just be coincidence is just kind of beyond belief. On top of that, um, Irish is, I guess, a licensed pilot. I don't know if I, I don't know if he's still around, but um, but he was a former member of the Civil Air Patrol based at the airport in Lantana, Florida, which is the same airport where Mohammed Atta is supposed to have rented a plane in 2001. And this victim, Robert Stevens, lived in Lantana. So there's just more kind of intertwining and more coincidences. Uh, in quotation marks. So it's it's quite amazing. Um, it's quite amazing that there is such a direct link between you know 9-11 and the anthrax attacks through this connection. And since we know that the anthrax attacks were not Muslim terrorists, then it really makes it that much more obvious that 9-11 wasn't either. It's just one more glaring reason why why the whole thing obviously is orchestrated as one operation. I know a lot of people want to just look at this as a side event, something that was overshadowed by the much more well-known event, uh, September 11th, watching the towers come down and all of that. But something to remember, and it's been mentioned a few times during the show, there were five people that died from these anthrax attacks. All right, For them, it was not a side event. It's not some little asterisk in history. For them, that was the very end. That was the thing that ended their whole existence and all their experiences throughout life. So we got to have justice for those five people. Also, uh, you, you list this in the article. Actually, the Lawyers Committee lists this because they came to five conclusions in their petition to Congress. Among them, number four says this. Those responsible for the anthrax attacks are still at large and the nation remains in peril. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. Uh, if you don't want to go there, you don't want to think about agencies being involved or entities of the U.S. government, if you want to believe uh, that uh, there's still some wiggle room there. Whoever did this, whoever actually did this, is still out there. right? Don't we want to solve crimes? Don't we want to find murderers? Isn't that what justice is all about? So we got to find out who actually did this and hold them responsible, make them meet the justice that they deserve. Any comments on that, Craig? Well, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we mustn't uh, we mustn't forget too that one of the key elements of this was that the two U.S. senators uh, res- had, had anthrax letters sent to them, and this was the second group of letters. So this was the much more concentrated, you know, weaponized type of anthrax, and and these, you know, it went to, to Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. And these two senators were perhaps getting in the way of the at least quick passage of the Patriot Act. So it's not that they were necessarily stopping the Patriot Act, but they, it, it wasn't going through as quickly as some uh, clearly wanted it to. And so, um, you know, it's it's revealing that they would they would be targets of this. And it's interesting, of course, that the Patriot Act uh, was passed not long after there was, uh, you know, it had its desired effect. So that's another reason why there's a revealing connection between 9-11 and the anthrax attack. So it's not, it's not just about kind of killing random people and making Muslims look, look bad for it. That's part of it, but it's clearly an attempt to influence uh, whatever reaction that the, the nation was going to have to 9-11.
you know, the Patriot Act was clearly intended to be the result, one of the results of 9-11. And uh, this was this was a way of making sure that happened as quickly as possible. That's correct. And we are at the end of the half hour and uh, just a few seconds here. But this falls under my umbrella of coverage, because, as I said, I consider this all part of 9-11. And there hasn't been enough done in the 9-11 Truth Movement on this issue. And uh, I'm not blaming the 9-11 Truth Movement for it. Obviously, we've been very uh, occupied with many things coming at us over the last 20 years or so. Um, But we do need to look at this even more. And I praise the Lawyers Committee for taking this on and doing this important work with Congress. So uh, you can go to LC for 911truth.org to see whatever updates they have. If they have any major significant updates, I'll invite them on to talk about it. And we're going to see where this goes. But thank God that somebody is still taking on this topic or bringing this up again. And, yeah, I don't care how many years pass. Justice is justice. It needs to be served. Hopefully you can get it sooner than later, but later is fine, too. So, Craig, thank you for your great work interviewing uh, the Lawyers Committee members and writing this article. And uh, thank you for all the work you do here at AE. And thanks for coming thanks, on Will. the 11 Free Fall, too. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. This program is on every Thursday night on No Lies Radio at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific, and every other Sunday night on BBS Radio at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific. You can also keep track of the archives by going to 911freefall.com. Zadie Steele, say have a great week. Good luck. <laughs>